0: I invite you to open your Bible to 1 John chapter 4, if you're new with us tonight, or if you need a Bible, Bibles are conveniently located in the back, if you need one I have an extra one up here, and you can grab one on the way in, and Shihong has a stack of them, so if you need a Bible, you don't have a Bible tonight, raise your hand, and we would love to give you a Bible. Anybody is here tonight, maybe you just don't have your Bible, something like that, Uh, the The verse we're looking at is on page 592 in that fancy white paperback Bible. So, for the rest of you, find the book of 1 John. And what we're doing is we're continuing a series we started at our retreat last weekend. Raise your hand if you didn't go on retreat with us. It's not to shame you, it's just to bring shame upon you. And there's a fine difference. Uh, We had a great time together. Uh, We almost were snowed in. The mystery of Southern California. Snow. And we started to talk about the love of God. And we did not talk about our love for God, which is always so deficient. Instead, we tried to talk about God's love for us. For a whole weekend, we tried to focus on the theme Of God's love for us. I believe that the solution to most of your problems would come from a deeper understanding of God's love for you. I think any deficiencies that you have in your love for God and in your love for others can be remedied in large part by a greater understanding of God's love for you. I think this is especially true in our world today, where the concept of love is very deficient. Where love and desire are conflated terms. In other words, in the words of Leon Morris, Australian theologian of some renown of a former era, Leon Morris said, There is no end to the list of atrocities that have been committed in the name of love. And he said that a generation ago. So how much more today have poets, musicians, and lovers of every kind perverted the nature and understanding and notion of love as God understands it, and done what they do in the name of love? Marriages have been destroyed in the name of love children have been abandoned by fathers because of love. I feel like something just happened to me. (laughs) Love is this most powerful force to, to all people. Everyone sings about love and talks about love and confesses love, but very few have God's definition of love. And so on the weekend, and you can download sermons this summer if you're bored, that we did at the retreat, we we talked about God's love properly for us. And we looked at the immeasurable kind of love God has from Ephesians chapter 3. The heights and the depths and the lengths and the breadth of the love of God. A love so infinite that we are called to both know it and understand it but simultaneously acknowledge its immeasurable nature. This is the practice of theology for Christians. To know the unknowable God. To know the, and explore the God who is limitless. And then we looked at the kind of perennial question that people have, who've glanced at the Bible at least, is the God of the Old Testament a God of love? And if you have questions about that, I tried to answer those questions in that sermon. And then after that, we looked at the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus. That He is the embodiment of divine love. And we think about, we, th- we, think about, we thought about Christ's life, His incarnation, his, his cross, His compassion, His ongoing ministry, and talked about the love of God there. So we have two more weeks of GOC, week 9 week 10 and there's one passage I want to look at, and I think it is the most formidable, most important passage on the love of God in the entire New Testament. It's in a book that talks all about the love of God from a theological perspective and begins to turn our focus not off of the love of God for us, but reflecting His love for us into the implications and needs of our love for one another, and our love for God. So we begin to turn a corner at this point in this little series on the love of God to think more carefully about how God's love for us impacts our love for others. And we need to start asking ourselves some some questions. Before we even get into 1 John 4, I want you to think about something that the Lord Jesus said to His disciples. He summarized the entire revelation that God had given to man. All the commandments, all the laws, all the history, everything that had been written down from the time of Moses on, the Jewish people had collected and practiced. Jesus was called on to weigh it all out. His opponents, the religious leaders, wanted to trick Him and trap Him, and so they asked Him, What's the most important thing? Give us a quick summary of the thousand pages. And Jesus wisely was able to do that by bringing it all down to two commands. One like the other, he said. Remember his words. The greatest commandment is to love God, and the second is like it, to love others. So love for God and love for neighbor are the summary of theology and instruction up to the time of Jesus. And because of Jesus' reinforcement of those commands to sum everything up and to bring it all together by reminding us that the two things that we need to do are number one, to love God, and number two, love our neighbor should provoke in us some questions. The first question is, what is it about loving God, the first and greatest commandment, that matters so much? Why does that matter to God? Why does God care if we love Him? Why is that the first command, the most important command, that He gives to human beings? Jesus wasn't just making this up. Deuteronomy 6 says that uh, they were to constantly and generationally rehearse in their minds their need to love God. But why does that matter to God? Well, as you know, God's glory is the reason God does everything He does. And because of God's commitment to His Name and His goodness and His glory and His person. Because God is the center of this universe. Because all things, Colossians 1.16, were created through Him and for Him, it makes sense that the highest and first command would be directed at Him. God values us as creatures made in His likeness and image. Therefore, He wants us to value most highly that which is most significant in this universe. And so He calls us to love Him first and foremost. That's the first question. Why does God want us to love Him? Why is that His highest value? And it's that God is glorified in our loving Him. The second question is more difficult. Why would the second commandment the second summary of all that God had revealed so far, be that we should love one another. Love for neighbor. Love for others. Why is that so significant to be the second part of what God requires of us? To think of everything that, as Jesus said, the law and the prophets hang on these two things, how is that number two? Why is love for others so massive, so important, so significant? Well, the answer to that is found in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and following. The argument in this little letter written by an aged apostle towards the end of his life, one who was intimately connected to Jesus, one of his closest disciples, one of the most important leaders in early Christianity. The Apostle John writes this letter to young believers, often referring to them as children. Technia, he calls them. Little kids. Little children. uh, An affectionate name that speaks of both his age and God's fatherhood to them. And and he repeatedly addresses them in this letter. and, And he talks to them over and over again about how they might know that they belong to God. And one of the primary evidences he keeps bringing before them is the importance of love. You see, 1 John is really a a lengthy exposition of those great commandments that Jesus gave. The call to love God and love others. And by the time we get to chapter 4, he has told them repeatedly how they might know they truly belong to God how they might know they could be assured of God's love for them, and how they might know that the work of God inside of them is real. He's repeatedly taught them about the love of God. And it's in this section in chapter 4 where he goes back to this theme of love and tries to show them why it matters so much that an understanding of love, of God's love, will elicit in us a love for God and a love for others. This is the summary, the chief end. This is the the main thing, the thesis statement, the proposition of your Christian life. I was talking to a brother today who recently became a Christian. And he was asking, what what do I do as a new believer? And I think we have a tendency to overcomplicate that question for someone who's new to Christianity. We have a long list of programs they could get involved in, or a stack of books that they ought to read, a a primer on Christian theology, or something that you found helpful at some point in your Christian life, but I wonder how often we direct them to the simplicity of loving God, of knowing God. That's what happens here in 1 John 4, 7 and following. We'll look at this passage for two weeks, but tonight I just want to look up through verse uh, 12. And then next week I'll look at verse 13 uh, through the end of that chapter, maybe even reaching into chapter 5, verse 3. But tonight let's just read this first little paragraph. It says this, Dear friends, 1 John 4, 7, Dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another... God lives in us, and His love is made complete in us. This is the very Word of the living God. May He write it in our hearts by way of His Spirit. So why? The central question tonight. Why is our love for each other at such an elevated level in the Scriptures? Why does it matter so much to God? And I'd like to show you why this matters by three answers in this text. The first one I think you find as the text unfolds, and this isn't necessarily contained just to the beginning of this passage, but is an idea that's throughout, and and it's the first answer I want to give to you. And it's this. it's, It's God is the one who has the authority to define love. God is the one who has the authority to define love. Verse 7 says, Dear friends, let us love one another because love is of God. And everyone who loves has been born of God or begotten of God. And the one who loves knows God. Please notice in verse 7, he begins by addressing them as dear friends. Again, this is coming from a really old man to a bunch of different Christians, many of them very young in their faith. And it's evident that he's living what he's preaching. The way he speaks to them is so tender and so kind. It's either technia, usually when he's referring to the fatherhood of God, or or to their uh, childlike nature in light of God's adopting them and caring for them. Or he calls them this word. Agapatoi, dear ones, beloved ones, lovely ones, dear friends. He almost always uses this little phrase as he talks about love, because he talks about love so much in this letter, and so it only makes sense that he would address them in a loving way. Dear ones, beloved ones, dear friends. As he talks about them as children of God, he calls them technia, children. Here he calls them agapatoi, their beloved little ones. And it makes sense that he would first talk about their love for one another being rooted and grounded in love being something that is in the realm of God. And so, this in and of itself in verse 7 is countercultural to the world we live in. Our world wants to be the ones who define love. Love wins. Love rules. Love is the motivating factor for massive cultural shift in our world. But that's a human definition of love. God is the one who defines love. It's God's authority who speaks to what love is. And as he gives the command to love one another, he immediately gives a rationale for that command that love is the defining characteristic of God. He's already told them that they need to be careful, discerning, or as MacArthur says, discerning, thoughtful, balanced. Cautious and wise. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. He says, dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you recognize the Spirit of God. He's trying to teach them in this section to recognize the real thing and counterfeits when it comes to spirituality. And there's a lot of false spirituality. Spirituality. There's a lot of false spirituality on this campus. There's a lot of false spirituality in this world. People are into spiritual things. They like crystals and they like, yeah. Spiritualness. Spirituality. You'll talk to somebody on on campus and they'll say, you know, I'm a really spiritual person. And what they mean by that, no one knows. So John understands, he, he lived in a world that was marked by spirits, I mean, witchcraft, you, you think Harry Potter's got stuff in it. If you lived in the Greco-Roman Empire, there was wizards and sorcerers everywhere. Dumbledore's got nothing on that. <laughs> so sorry. So this kind of discernment he calls them to also applies not just to listening to false spirituality, but Understanding that love and the definition of love is not ultimately up to you or anyone in this world. Love is defined by God and His authority. It exists in His realm. That's why verse 7 says, love comes from God. So many would read this verse and take it to understand that it's sort of a pantheistic understanding of love. Like wherever love is, God is. That is definitely not what this text says. Though it does imply that the existence of love at all is completely dependent on the existence of God, and that is true, I don't think that's what the argument here is. Because verse 7 goes on to say, everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. A past tense experience of being born of God is a prerequisite to loving God and loving others. In other words, just because you've experienced a sensation that you call love doesn't mean that everything is right in your life. Just because you have a definition of love that works for you doesn't mean that you're aligned with God. That's not what this verse is saying. Another further evidence of that would be to read this letter in its entirety, which I won't do for you now. But we've all seen kind of the fake news on Facebook. the Videos that people edit to change what a politician that they don't like is saying. You know, they can make them say anything and give it a rap beat or, or whatever by editing a video. It's just like that when you take the Bible out of context. It's just like twisting someone's words. If you are to read the letter in its entirety, you would have read chapter 3, verse 23. Look what it says. It says, and this is his command to believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as He commanded us. Those who obey His commands live in Him and He in them. And this is how we know that He lives in us. We know it by the Spirit He gave us. You see, what he's saying here to us is that John is claiming that everyone who loves is born of God and knows God that does not complete all incomplete expressions of love. He's referring to a certain kind of love that is found only in those who have been born of God. So friend, just because you felt a a tingling in your heart or just because the concept of affection appeals to you with your definition of it doesn't doesn't mean that you have anything in common with God's authoritative definition of love. When He calls us to love one another three times in this passage alone, and He roots it in because love is from God, and shows us that love flows from or out of God, and God is the spring and source of all love, He qualifies that love and reminds us that distinctly Christian love can only be known by those who've been made alive in their innermost level, in their hearts by God. In other words, you don't know what love is unless you've experienced God's love through the work of regeneration. If you've been born again, you can start to understand God's definition of love. But if you have not been born again, if God has not given you a heart that believes that you are a sinner in need of forgiveness, That Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. That God and God alone has ultimate authority over your life. You cannot know anything about the true, abiding love of God. So first off, God defines love. He's the only one with the authority to do so. Our ability to love God or others flows from... The work of regeneration, of giving new life in Christ. The word born is in the perfect tense here. It's something that's happened to you in the past. There was a time in your life, whether you became a Christian when you were very young or whether you've recently committed your life to Christ when you were not born again. When you were in the words of Ephesians 2, dead in your sins and transgressions. But when you were born again, something changed in you. And you continued to grow in the knowledge of God. And that's why he uses that word in verse 7. Knowledge. And that's in the present tense. In other words, these believers had been born again and now they're growing because they're knowing. And they're growing in their love for others because that love for others is rooted and grounded in love for God. But he doesn't leave it there. He gets more specific and helps us understand why it's so important that Jesus would emphasize at the second greatest commandment and the one that's like the first. So answer number two is this. The supreme expression of love is on the cross of Jesus Christ. The supreme expression of love is on the cross of Jesus Christ. Look with me at verse 8. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This further helps us understand that God is the One who has all authority to define what love is, to tell us who God is. We talked this a little bit about the, at the retreat. This phrase, God is love, has occurred multiple times in 1 John. This is the second occurrence that he says God is love. John Stott calls this the most sublime of all biblical affirmations about God's being. The most sublime of all biblical affirmations about God's being. The true child of God believes and loves. Chapter 3, verse 23. And he believes and loves because God is the one who embodies love. God is not ontologically love. In other words, love is God. Love equals God. God equals love. What this verse is saying is that love is that core attribute of God. That love is so exclusively in the domain and authority of God that we can say a phrase so sublime as God is love. Verse 9 helps us understand why the cross is so significant to our understanding of the love of God. The supreme expression of love is the cross. Verse 9, this is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as as a propitiation or atoning sacrifice for our sins. See, rather than looking in the human realm in human relationships, for the supreme example of love, rather than rewatching The Notebook, or finding whatever expression in human literature, Romeo and Juliet, or whatever it is, Korean telenovas, or whatever they're called, <laughs> whatever wonderful literary expressions of love that we've appreciated, the expression of love that's most supreme and most telling that exposes, exposits, defines the love of God for us is on the cross of Christ. This is why he says to know love is to know God. To know God is to know love, that God is love. And then verse 9, in a definitive way, attempts to show that believers are to love first because love is in verse 8, the very nature of God. And because they now belong to God and they've partaken of the nature of God in the new birth, this is reminding us of, of that magnificent verse, John 3:16, "For God so loved the world, that He gave His only Son, that whoever might believe in Him would not perish but have eternal life, its counterpart in God's mysterious providence, in 1 John 3.16, says this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. You see, the work of Christ on the cross defines to us how committed God is to showing us His love. The structure of verse 9 has the word uh, monogoness. I love that word just because it sounds like you have a Scottish accent when you say monogonese, it. it means only begotten one. It's, it's only son. there. it occurs in the New Testament about ten times. And as you look through the use of this word in the New Testament, you could translate the, the word as only son or only begotten one or one and only When John uses the word, it's it's only to refer to Christ. And the way he says it here is the Son of Him. The One and Only. It's emphasizing the uniqueness of this expression of love. It's the ultimate expression. When God sent, the word is, His Son. That word sent usually talks about an apostle, an emissary. Someone who's been sent out as a representative. In that way, That's how we know God showed His love among us. That He sent His monogoness, He apostled. He commissioned. He sent as an emissary of heaven. The one who best represents and reflects His nature. So that we might know what love looks like. If God is some nebulous concept to you, I would call you to come to the Bible and read about the life of Christ. And see what it looks like when God takes on flesh. Because the mark of Christ's ministry in His life as He touched sick people, as He healed diseases, as He raised the widow's son, as He moved among the crowds of people harassed and helpless because they didn't have a shepherd, as He touched lepers and healed them, as He uh, spoke words of tenderness and comfort to people who were, who were hurting, He showed us the love of God. And then when He went to the cross, He expressed it in the highest possible level. The purpose that He puts onto this is so powerful. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might, look at the final words of verse 9, live through Him. That we might live through Him. He's already said this six times in verses 9 through 16. Live through Him. Live through Him. Verse 13, we know and we live in Him and He in us. He keeps repeating Himself about that phrase, live through Him. You see, if you're a Christian, your identity and your purpose has been remade. When you were born again and born into the love of God, now you exist in and through the love of Christ. Life in and through the Son is that expression of such interest to the Apostle that it also ought to be of interest to us. When you think about your life, when you think about your goals, when you think about your ambitions, do you think about your life in the Son? Can you go to med school in the sun, Can you do your senior year through the sun? Can you pursue uh, a relationship in the sun? Because if you're a Christian, everything you do ought to be in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. You belong to Him, you've been born of Him, and now His love reflects through you. Do you get that? Do you see what a powerful motivation that is For all of life. Look at verse 10. It says, this is love. Not that we loved God. But that He loved us and sent His Son. Again, sent His Son. As an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And here once again the cross is made central. That concept of an atoning sacrifice. Of Propitiation in verse 10 tells us that God sent His Son to die. It tells us that God's love is first. God's love is primary, not ours. That the focus of our Christian life is never solely on the love we have for God and the love we have for others because it's foundational to the concept of God's love. God's love came first if you're struggling to love God as you ought to, remember, go back to the starting place. God loved you first. You matter to Him. You have value to Him. He cares about you. He has affection for you. He loves you with an everlasting love. Now you can start to build on the expressions of God's love, the definition of God's love, and you won't go very far until you see the greatest expression of his love is the death of Christ though his incarnation as we talked about last weekend is a wonderful example of the love of god as jesus strips himself of rights and privileges in, in heaven's throne and condescends to us the cross in this propitiatory act the in our place the one who died for our sin the one who took away our punishment was a loving act of God. God to love, God to send, and God to give His Son in our place. God loved us. When you see the cross, the message is clear. God loved us. He sent His Son, and He sent Him to die for us. That's why the poet says, amazing love, how can it be? That Thou, my God, would die for me. It's a reminder to all of us that love is action-oriented. It's not static. It's not merely affectionate. Sometimes I think in, with good motives, when we talk about Christian love, we talk about how it's an act of the will. That it's a decision. Have you heard people say that? They're trying to help you when they say that. It's because young people often treat love like it's a Burmese tiger trap, something you fall into and gets you with the sticks. I've, I've fallen in love and I've broken my tibia, you know, that kind of a, an experience. And so, helpful, wise older Christians have said to you, Well, you don't fall in love. Love is a volitional thing. It's a a willful thing. Love is a decision. And that's true, but if you've ever felt the pitter-patter, you know that there is a component of affection in love. That doesn't negate the volitional or willful aspect of love. But love is, is both from the heart and from the will. God's love is like that. Remember Deuteronomy 7 when it said He loved us because He set His love on us. There was a decision that God made to love that was rooted and grounded in actual love. And so we remind ourselves that yes, love is a choice. Love is an act of the will, but love is also full and passionate and deep. God's love is like that. And so in verse 10, we see the expression of God's incredible and unfathomable love is to send His Son to die in our place, to take away our sins, to destroy the works of the devil, to make us right with God, to reveal His love to us, to show us that the essence of love is sacrifice and that our love is is not primary, but God's love is primary, and that the way He's shown us His love in an undeniable, unforgettable way is to put His Son to death in our place. A death that we deserved, that He took on Himself, the perfect Lamb of God. The origin of all human love is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, third and finally, to help us understand why it's so important that we... Love others. Why is it elevated so high? And we haven't even seen the command to love others yet, but we'll see it here and we'll look at it more next week. Look at verse 11. Dear friends, since God, and this is a purpose clause, this word in in Greek in verse 11, we have a, a kind of a purpose word here. Since God. Since God so loved us we also ought to love one another. You see, for the Apostle John, it's automatic. Verse 11 takes that admonition in verse 7 which was so quick. Let us love one another. And then he talks about the origin of love being in God. The authority of love being God. The core attribute of love being in God. But then he comes back to it reinforcing it. This is a chiastic kind of a looking thing in Greek. It's Verse 7 is matchy-matchy with verse uh, 11. That's a technical linguistic term, (laughs) matchy-matchy. Since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Building on verse 7, and for the sixth time calling them dear friends in this letter, just underscoring that He loves them and He's telling them something so important, not in a cold way, but in a warm way. He's building on what He said throughout this letter. The love of God is the motive for our loving others. You see, it's absolutely necessary if we are to be genuine in our love for others that we see that it's God's love that enabled our new life and love for God, and God's love initiates our new birth, giving rise to it, and leads to our love for God, and then unites us to Christ and His saving work. And then in this verse 11, we see our new life and love for God will always lead to love for others. So much so that John will tell us next week, if we don't love other Christians, We don't really know the love of God. Sneak up to verse 12. It says, no one has ever seen God. What kind of a sentence is that? I thought we're talking about loving others. That since God loved us, we should love others. So where does no one has ever seen God come from? Why a statement suddenly on the invisibility of God? What does that have to do with anything, John? Is it because he's old? Is his mind starting to slip? What's happening here? It's because the love we show to others being completely dependent on the love of God is visible evidence and a display of the invisible God. That His love for the world displayed most expressively at the cross is now communicated to a watching world, so blind and so dead and so confused about love that they call everything that they see and feel and like love, but they don't know what God's love is like, the way that He expresses it to the world and shows His invisible self to them is through your love for other Christians. And that's where we need to turn. So tonight, we got one more message reminding us that we can't understand love unless we understand God's love. We don't know an expression of love that's higher than the cross of Christ and God sending and giving His Son. But now He begins to show us that our new life and love for God will lead to love for others. And our love for one another will display the invisible God and His love to the world. This has implications for your final week of school. This has significant ramifications for how you will spend your summer. This will display how you will display the love of God in your life for the rest of your life. And John, this this elderly apostle, this wise old Christian, wants to carefully show us what it's going to look like to display the invisible God, to show His love to others. And that's what we'll look at next week.